Hey everyone, welcome to the Missio Podcast. This is Palm Sunday, which is actually one of my absolute favorite Sundays in the year. There is so much imagery and so many things going on on Palm Sunday that I, I feel like we often just kind of miss a lot of what's taking place in and around this story when we just kind of read the triumphal story without really digging too much into it. And so we're wanting to actually dig into this very significant moment in the life of Jesus because there's a lot to unpack. So again, we've been working our way through the Old Testament, talking about God's kingdom. And last week we talked a bit about the prophetic moments that happened in the Old Testament and how these moments were meant for the people that they were spoken to. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can also take away from the Old Testament prophecies. You know, but one of the things we mentioned last week was that sprinkled throughout the prophets were these moments where people would talk about the Messiah to come. And so from Jeremiah and Isaiah to the Psalms, even the book of Daniel, which is probably best known for the stories like Daniel and the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these all contain these messianic prophecies which lead toward Jesus. But in Daniel, there is this important messianic prophecy in chapter 7 that I want us to look at just for a second. And, and before we read this specific moment in Daniel, someday I honestly just hope to unpack all that is taking place in Daniel chapter 7 because it's pretty it's a pretty important dream that Daniel is having about these four beasts and everything that's going on. It's kind of crazy. But this dream is a depiction of how every kingdom in the world that has ever existed and ever will exist will ultimately fall short of the ultimate good of God's kingdom expectation. So there is this moment, though, in Daniel chapter 7 that alludes to the coming of this messianic figure. And so starting in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship to all the peoples and nations and languages so that they should, that they should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And, he, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. You know, most of these prophecies would talk about how there is one who would come to be the king of kings, right? He would be the high priest. His kingdom would never die or go away. And, and, and you really get the sense that much of the Old Testament was leading to the moment of Jesus' eventual coming to the earth. And so there's actually a lot of ways that people see the Old Testament in relation to Jesus. Some people believe that every Old Testament story breathes the name of Jesus. This is something you probably hear a lot of. That in every moment of the Old Testament, you can and should find Jesus somehow in those places. This is a pretty popular reading of the Old Testament. It's called a Christocentric reading of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the lens through which all of the Old Testament is meant to be understood and interpreted through. And so this perspective will take every story. Say it's a story like Daniel and the lion's den from Daniel chapter 6. And then they'll ask, what is this story telling us about Jesus? You know, maybe Jesus is a lion. He came to calm our hunger or whatever it is. The problem with the Christocentric reading of the Old Testament is that not every Old Testament passage is actually about Jesus, right? Sometimes it's just simply about Daniel and lions. When people try to unearth the ways in which every Old Testament story speaks to Jesus, then I think we miss that the Old Testament is primarily about God and 
the Spirit. A better way of seeing all of these prophecies about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, and really all of the Old Testament as a whole, is to view it as the story of God and the Spirit and the people of God that leads toward the Messiah. This leading towards, and I know you can't see this, but I did air quotes around those words because it's a definition. The leading toward is what we call Christotelic. And again, I know this is kind of a lot of theological terms that I'm throwing at you right now, but Christotelic means that we recognize trajectories in the Old Testament that culminate in Christ without making the old in the entire Old Testament narrative about Christ as opposed to about God, which is what the Christocentric reading does, or attempting to pull out specific doctrines or teachings about Christ from the Old Testament, which is the Christological reading of the Old Testament. And so the goal is not necessarily to find Jesus on every page and in every story of the Old Testament, but rather to see how the collective, the collection of stories and laws and ideas about the kingdom of God, they're all leading toward this moment of the coming Messiah. And so as we've been going throughout this study on God's kingdom, everything that we've been looking at in the Old Testament, priests and kings and judges, prophets, law, land, people, all of it, ultimately leads toward Jesus. And the reason that this is important is because we eventually do get to the story of Jesus in Scripture. So we wrap up the Old Testament and we turn the pages to Matthew chapter 1, and all of a sudden we're introduced to this person, to, to Jesus of Nazareth. And we're introduced to him through what is called a genealogy, which I know is everyone's favorite pastime, right? Reading genealogies is, is what everyone loves. But all a genealogy is, is simply tracing family lineage and history throughout time. And so my father-in-law is doing a lot of work to trace his family lineage all the way back to the American Revolution. And it's been fun to listen as he finds new people who help fill in the story of his family's kind of overarching story. And so we're introduced to Jesus through this genealogy that if we just simply blow past, we will miss the intent of it being our first encounter with Jesus. Because genealogies in scripture are often incomplete, right? Jesus' genealogy in Matthew and the one in Luke, they trace his lineage back to Abraham, 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 I don't know what that is, Abraham and Adam respectively, right? But they don't name every person who could possibly be in Jesus' family line. And the reason was because genealogies in Scripture served several main purposes. One, they did help establish a family history. And this was important because it would settle legal disputes over things like land ownership. Sometimes what genealogies did, though, was that they were recording historical events. And so in Genesis chapter 5... You have a genealogy from Adam to Noah, which is to help frame the story of the creation to the flood. But two of the more significant uses of genealogies in Scripture were, one, to establish a person's legitimacy, and then two, to demonstrate a person's fulfillment of prophecy, which makes the New Testament introducing Jesus through a genealogy so important. Because in Matthew, they show his line all the way back to Abraham, who is considered to be the father of nations, the man who God made his most important covenant with and told him that the nation of Israel would arise from his line. But it also included people like Jacob and Issachar, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, 
King David himself, which remember God consistently prophesied of a king of king who kings who would come from the line of David. But also in that genealogy are people like Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel helped oversee the rebuilding of the temple of God after the people returned from the exile. But there was also people like Zadok and Eleazar who were both prominent priests from the line of Aaron. And so in other words, at the very introduction of Jesus, Matthew and Luke are both saying, look, this is the guy that everything in the past, in scripture, in prophecy, in the law, this is who all of this is pointing to. And so if the Old Testament was like this giant arrow leading toward one direction, it would point directly to a small baby in a manger in Bethlehem. I mean, have you ever wondered why the multitude of angels, which we've talked about uh, previously at Missio, that this word multitude meant essentially a sea of angels larger than could ever be counted in a lifetime. But why did that multitude of angels show up at the birth of Jesus and declare glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those he favors? Yes, it's because the Savior was born on that night, but it was also because everything that had happened through thousands of years of human history had pointed to this moment. And finally, the angels of heaven were getting their chance to celebrate. Have you ever watched those movies where there's like a ton of really weird things that are happening and you don't, you don't quite get what is taking place? But finally, at the end of the, of the movie, all the characters realize how everything that was taking place all fit together and how everything was leading to this one heroic or grand moment. But then typically, what happens in the movie after that grand epic moment? Usually, the movie just kind of ends. Like, that's it. See, I think we're pretty good at visualizing moments like this, that crescendo to a climactic moment. But we tend to be really bad at imaging or imagining what happens after the big moment. And this is what's so important about Scripture because... The birth of Jesus, his coming to earth as Emmanuel, as God with us, was a crescendo moment. But it was one that doesn't end the movie, but rather it ushers in the most important moment in human history, which is, as Jesus says, the kingdom of God anew through him. See, we've been seeing how the kingdom, um, the kingdom was already a thing, right? Remember the kingdom of God didn't originate in the moment of Jesus' birth. We've been seeing how it functioned for the last many weeks, but all all of that, all of the things in the Old Testament was leading to this one moment of the kingdom of God anew in Jesus. And see, most of what Jesus does throughout his life and ministry are fulfillments of the way the kingdom was intended to operate, but never could because the perfect king and the perfect priest and the perfect judge, the perfect prophet hadn't yet arrived. And so there are these moments in Jesus' life that, re- that directly recall specific roles of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And so take Jesus' baptism from Matthew chapter 3. I want to read a part of that, starting in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well 
please. And so in Old Testament coronation ceremonies, the king would be anointed with oil and his kingship would be proclaimed to everyone who was near. And so Jesus' baptism moment is the same kind of coronation moment, but instead of being anointed by oil, he's anointed by the Spirit of God in the form of a dove. And instead of a priest or some other royal official proclaiming his kingship, God himself declares him king. He doesn't use those words, though, does he? He doesn't, like, say, now, here is your king. Instead, he says, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And we've talked about how God was the true king of his kingdom, right? Israel rejected God as their king in asking for a human king. So when God, the true king of all things, declares that Jesus is his son, he is saying, this is the heir to my throne. If you remember the transfiguration moment we looked at a few weeks back from Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. And in that moment, Moses and Elijah show up, right? The disciples are like, wow, let's build temples for these guys. And again, the temple being the place where the priests would meet with God on behalf of the people to set right the relationship between God and his people. And then what happens? Jesus begins shining with the light of God, just like Moses, who is the first priest figure, shined when he met with God. And once again, God declares, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds this little phrase. He says, listen to him, which is important. The priests were the ones who carried the words of God to the people of God. And so God in this moment is anointing Jesus' role as high priest who carries the words of God to his people. And then finally, we get to this moment of Palm Sunday. Jesus has been doing his ministry, but the time was coming for him to step into this ultimate role of priest and king and judge and prophet. Because as he does, he, he becomes something even more than priest and king and judge or prophet. In this moment, he adds another label to his repertoire. He becomes savior. And so let's look at this story from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. It says, after this, after he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As he, as they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Now, as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And so in ancient Israelite culture, the use of a donkey was a significant symbol of kingship. The donkey was seen as a humble and peaceful animal, which was suitable for the king to ride during times of peace and in his role as judge and administrator. But more important than that, if you guys remember, one of the the demands that God had for the kings of Israel was that they not gather horses because horses were symbols of war and strength. 
And so the donkey became the symbol of the king, showing humility and submission to God and an obedience and trust in God's ultimate kingship. And so way back in the Old Testament, there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 1 when King David is dying and he's made this ruling that Solomon, who is Bathsheba's son, would become king after his death. But another one of David's son, Adonijah, tries to steal the kingship for himself and has himself declared king. Basically, he's like, look, anyone who says I'm not king, you can come and question me or you can come you know, talk to me or whatever. And so David summons Bathsheba to him and tells her, look, bring Zadok the priest, who was also in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Bring him to me and have the prophet Nathan come to me and have them both set Solomon on my royal donkey. And so they do this and they anoint Solomon's head with oil and then they parade him through the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming long live King Solomon. And so this triumphal entry moment with Jesus is recalling these significant pieces of Israel's kingship as Jesus then has his disciples find a donkey and then they place Jesus on the donkey and they start parading Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem and the people are laying their cloaks and palm branches down, declaring him to be king. And this is important. The use of the cloaks and palm branches had significant symbolic meaning at the time. The spreading of the cloaks on the road was an act of homage, a sign of respect and submission that was given to royalty. And so in ancient times, this was a traditional way of showing honor to kings and rulers. And the waving of palm branches was also a sign of honor and victory. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, the people would wave palm branches and sing praises to God. And this showed again that the people believed Jesus to be a king who had come to deliver them by spreading their cloaks and waving palm branches. They were declaring their allegiance to him and showing that they expected him to be a victorious ruler over uh, who would liberate them from their oppressors, right? Which he was there to free them, but in a radically different way than they had anticipated. And so I want to pick the story back up in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, because Jesus has this moment of deep sadness for the people. He says, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, Jesus in this moment is expressing a sense of sadness and disappointment. He's saying that the people, they missed their opportunity to recognize the things that could have brought them true peace and goodness. And the things that make for peace that Jesus is referring to are his teachings and the principles of his kingdom, which emphasize love and forgiveness and reconciliation, a reversal of all of the expectation of earthly kingdoms to conquer and rule and subdue. He is saying that if the people had recognized these principles and put them into practice, then they could have achieved true peace, both within themselves and in their relationships with others. But they didn't seek peace. Instead, they are going to resort to violence. And Jesus is heartbroken, knowing that all, all that is about to unfold. See, Jesus knew that the kingdom he was ushering in would require, would require of him something that no one else before him was ever able to accomplish in order for that kingdom to become fully present and real as God intended. It would take the king of kings, the high priest, the true and noble judge, the prophetic voice of God himself, God's only son to become the slaughtered lamb of God or, or the slaughtered lamb on behalf of all people everywhere for all times. 
And I think sometimes we wrongfully ridicule the Jews for missing the point of what Jesus was there to achieve. But I think we have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. And so we think, why didn't you get the Messiah? Why didn't you get that the Messiah wasn't going to come and strengthen military power to free you from Roman persecution and oppression? Why didn't you see better and know better that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb? But I think, honestly, if you and I had been living throughout the Old Testament story as people from within that story, we too would have missed it, right? The more I look at everything, the more I believe, yeah, I probably would have missed this. And the reason I think this is because we still wrestle with this same issue today. We sometimes assume that Jesus aligns with whatever political leaning that I have that I think will free people from whatever oppression that I think exists, right? And so it's easy for us to wonder how the Jews in the first century could have missed it, right? When we in the 21st century are still not seeing it with clarity. But everything in the Old Testament that truly does point to Jesus points to a kingdom that is fundamentally different from every other kingdom that has ever existed in the world because it is truly a not a kingdom of self-preservation, of command and conquer, of wealth and power. It is a kingdom of light and beauty and goodness and honor and love, of sacrificially lifting up of others, of peace, of real peace that actually leads to all things being infused with the fullness of God's tov. And it comes through one source, through one avenue, which is through Jesus, which is why we need to end this time of teaching by showing the real image of Jesus as king. See, the places of his fulfillment of all the Old Testament that it was pointed to happens in John chapter 19, verses 18, 18 through 22, which says, There they crucified him and with the two others, one on either side, and with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief, then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. See, before we can get to Easter morning and the joy of resurrection, we have to talk about the reality of Jesus' kingship that led him to and through the cross. The roles of the Old Testament kingdom that we've looked at the past weeks have something all in common together. Ultimately, each of those roles were meant to be places of sacrificial leadership, helping others experience the nearness and goodness of God's rule and reign in their lives. The kings were to be as one from among the people, leading people towards obedience and faithfulness to God. The priests were meant to have a willingness to sacrifice themselves to lift people up before God. The judges were supposed to be the ones who led God's people back to him when they were when they were going astray. And the prophets were supposed to embody the covenant relationship with God so they could remind people of his desire to give and provide out of the abundance of, the abundance of heaven for them. Jesus embodied all of these all at once and in the ultimate act of sacrifice opened the floodgates of God's kingdom in a way never before experienced. And ultimately the question for us becomes what do we do with this story? And I think it's really simple. Today is Palm Sunday. You know, in Matthew's version of Jesus' triumphal entry moment, the crowds proclaim something really important. They say in Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Hosanna is an ancient Hebrew expression that has been used as a cry of praise or acclamation to God. And it's often used as an exclamation of joy and blessing or adoration. It's derived from the Hebrew phrase, Hoshia na, which means save us now or save us we pray. And so when the crowds were proclaiming this as they watched Jesus enter on a donkey showing his true kingship, I think that they did believe what they were saying. They did want a savior. They may have misunderstood all of what that meant in that moment, but they were not disingenuous in their declarations. They wanted a savior, the savior. And I think sometimes we don't fully grasp everything that we are saying about Jesus and his relationship with us. And so we may say things in worship and declaration that we just don't fully get, but we still fully genuinely can believe what we are saying in those moments. And so nonetheless, we make the same declaration of his kingship and of his salvation, which has been freely given to us because of his death and resurrection. And so together we say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone.